I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Gutsfried. This week on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, we're sharing some of the delicious ways we build community, from baking to breaking bread. Sharing a meal is so much more than just food. It's how we find common ground and build stronger relationships with people who surround us in our life. In today's show, we'll sit down with two prolific individuals in the culinary world, best-selling author Mark Bittman and his cookbook collaborator, Carrie Conan. And later, we'll meet up with our local community hero and renowned restaurateur, Mark Smith, who'll talk about how memorable moments around the table strengthen our communities. You know what? It's not a particular food. It's a smell. It's a smell of walking into my grandmother's house. It's never about the food. It's about the people and where you're having it. It's time to come together on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. As one of the oldest food items around, hundreds of different types of bread have evolved over many thousands of years, but essential ingredients always remain the same. Flour, water, yeast, and salt are everything you need to make a delicious loaf of bread. Although understanding the chemistry of the ingredients and the baking fundamentals can seem like it could be a lifetime to perfect, with a bit of guidance and basic understanding of the fundamentals, you can successfully bake bread at home. Joining us today is the dynamic duo of the written word and food. Mark Bittman is the author of more than 30 books, number one New York Times bestselling author, and wrote for the New York Times for more than three decades. Mark is an Emmy-winning TV host and editor-in-chief of The Bittman Project, and the host of the podcast, Food with Mark Bittman. His longtime cookbook collaborator, Carrie Conan, is a former editor at Simon & Schuster. Her writing has appeared in Gourmet, Health, Entertainment Weekly, Organic Life, and Sabor magazines, as well as Mark's blog for the New York Times, his newsletter, and the Bittman Project. They're here to share a revolutionary approach to making delicious no-need breads, pizza, waffles, cookies, cinnamon rolls, soft pretzels, beignets, and more all with whole grain. Hi, Mark and Carrie. Hi. Hi, George. Great to be here. Well, this is definitely a very healthy and flavorful approach to baking. But before we we dive into the dough, let's say, I'm very curious about what fond memories you both have growing up uh, that might have centered around bread. You know, my mom, she fermented some things on the counter. Uh, Mostly, I remember brandied fruit, actually. But um, she did tamper with sourdough a little bit, but I wasn't into it then. Mark got me. You know, I baked yeasted bread, but I didn't have a starter until uh, Mark kind of wrote me into this project. I was very willing, but now I've made uh, 260 different bakes in the last few years with the same starter. And um, I know Mark has made many, many thousands more. So he... I, I don't remember, Mark, do you have a childhood memory or how did you get into it? I can't remember. I got into it the same way I got into everything else. I'll get to that in a second. But my, I never had homemade bread. I, I honestly can say I never had homemade bread until I made it myself when I was 20. Never, not once. Um, but my mother did send me to the bakery on First Avenue often for what you'd now call Jewish rye, I guess, or corn rye. But we just called it rye. Um, and that bread was pretty good. And, and Carrie and I worked on, on developing something pretty close to it. Uh, I would say it's probably better. Um, what we've done is probably better, but when I started to cook and I started to cook completely out of curiosity, um, 
1970, maybe even maybe even 68. Um, and when I lived by myself in 1970, I I got a copy of Joy of Cooking, and I just started tackling everything that I'd always wanted to make. And bread was one of them. And man, the recipes were much different in those days. You would scald milk, dissolve the yeast in the milk, add some butter. I mean, there was always white flour, almost always entirely white flour. It was the opposite of what we're doing now. And just Actually, one thing about your intro, George, which, um, I mean, it's, it's not wrong. Bread is water, flour, yeast, salt. But the yeast we're using is wild yeast. Sourdough bread is wild yeast, natural starter. And that, uh, I, I made bread for from 1970 until, let's say, 2015 with without doing much in the way of sourdough. And when I was turned on to using sourdough starter. That was that was the beginning of of this book, Bitman Bread, and the beginning of this collaboration between me and Carrie, and sort of the beginning of my understanding how to make really, really, really good, like the best bread in the world. What was the difference when you switched over to the sourdough starter that made you say, you know what, I need to do a book project out of this? Well, the book project came later, but the yeah, so it's sort of a two-part question. The, fir the first thing was I realized that if you want to bake with whole grain, you have to use sourdough. Like Absolutely. commercial yeah. yeast, you know, Fleischmann's for better or worse, Red Star. It, um, support it's, it, yeah. it can't support. It just doesn't mm -hmm. have the power to work with whole grain. Mm -hmm. When you switch to sourdough, you can kind of do whatever you want. So that was a huge discovery. And I was living in the Bay Area then, and there are a lot of, devoted, obviously sourdough is a big Bay Area tradition, but there are a lot of devoted whole grain sourdough bakers out there. And, and that's where I got turned on to it. And then when I moved back East and, and got pretty serious, I mean, why my life stabilized and I had a real kitchen and so on. That's when I, I said to Carrie, this is like, this is a whole nother animal. I am really onto something here. And Carrie's very methodical and scientific. So we, we got at, you know, weights and measures and, and taking it more seriously. And I, I think we really have an amazing formula for, for making successful whole grain bread, reliably making really good whole grain bread. Now, is, is your starter shared between the two of you? Is it from the same? Oh, on opposite coasts. No. You know, what the interesting thing about our starter, it, for me, it was the biggest hurdle to jump. Why I never made sourdough bread was like, oh, no, mm -hmm. I'm just going to screw up. I'm not going to be able to get a starter to start, and it's going to drive me nuts. But we have this method where you actually take Mark's uh, and Jim Leahy's no-need bread, a white bread, and you take a lump of that. And that becomes your starter and you just start feeding it. And we did a lot of research and talked to some cereal scientists around the country. And um, it we think that what happens is that you end up, first of all, it's not a very acidic. It ends up not being a super acidic like San Francisco style sourdough. It's very pleasantly tangy. Um, and it has a low, it has a high pH. Um, but the... You, as you feed it, you develop the ambient yeast that anyways. So it's a foolproof way of getting, you know, getting there with a sourdough and it lives in the refrigerator. Uh, so you only have to bake or feed it every 10, 
10 days or so at the max. We say seven in the book just to be safe, but really we've pushed it 10 days, what, two weeks, Mark? Um, I just did two weeks. I just yeah. let the, the so Zarados sit there for two you, weeks. It doesn't have to live on your counter and bubble all over. There is no discard. You just take out what you want and you so you don't waste any. Um, it's just a, and it's very, very, we have in the book a lot of how-to, very careful photographs of what the dough looks like at different stages. So you can measure or not. I mean, you can do it all by feel. Uh, so we feel like it's made it quite flexible, a very flexible process. Now, the environment, you're, you're, you're bi-coastal, I, I guess. You're one's in, one of, I'm in the Puget Sound area in Tacoma. Yeah, we're each on one coast, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm really intrigued because as a chef, I've cooked on both coasts. And I've had to adjust my baking recipes based upon a lot of environments. Did you have to approach anything for your book based upon geography, based upon humidity, based upon dryness, temperatures, coolness? I mean, every every loaf of bread is different. Um, it's right. not science. I mean, there is science, but it's not, it's not, uh, you can't say do this exact thing every single time and the same thing will happen. It's just not like that. It's like going for a walk around the block. Every time you do it, something different happens. You're still walking around the block and you will still make successful bread every time. But man, sometimes you're just like, why is this taking so much water? Or why is this taking so little water? Why is this dough so wet? Why is this dough so responsive? Why is this bread so beautiful? Why is it so flat? I mean, stuff just happens. And I don't know, obviously we can't, compare apples and apples here. Um, all I know is every time I change flowers, every time the weather changes, there's subtle differences. Um, you know, which is not to say that our, I don't want to give the impression that our recipe is unreliable. It is reliable, but there's judgment involved. Um, and that's true of all cooking. I mean, wh when you make something the 50th time, you're better at it than you were making it the first time. You just absorb that knowledge. You don't really have to think about it that much. Well, it's something I like to explain to people when they go through cookbooks and recipes, too, is that there's room for error and there's room for what you like. You know, you don't have to follow everything super strict. Absolutely. Well, and I think that's why we focus so much on the, I mean, if you've noticed, the main recipe is, what, 40 pages long or something, spread out with photographs and everything. I think we foc we wanted to focus on the tactile experience of the bread making and how to read. We have a whole section on how to read the dough and make adjustments. Um, and Mark and I were very careful. He grinds his own whole kernels, and I buy, I've, I've bought pre-ground whole grain bread from uh, flour from various sources so that we would cover all the the bases. You know, the, uh, we didn't want us both milling or us both using commercial flour. So uh, we have had different experiences and thousands of photos and videos we've shared back and forth, you know, like while we're working the dough and, oh, look at the, you know, so it was almost like we were together. I feel like it was almost like we were together. Well, I love the the part just on hydration and how you both approach it different. And I think, Carrie, you were talking about percentages. Mark, you were talking about you know, other variables and, and even folding the dough and handling it and kneading it. It was uh, a, a good demonstrative approach for a cookbook. We did 
sort of accommodate each other. But we said, well, I'm doing it this way. I'm doing it this way. And then we'd look at the results and they were kind of the same thing. And we have tasted each other's mm -hmm. bread. We have, we have been together enough to eat each other's bread. And, and we know, we both know the other one is good, but it, we decided rather than be ironclad about it, because, you know, as Alex was just saying, as I was just saying, you, it's not going to be the same thing twice. So why not start with there's flexibility here. There's many different ways of doing it. Yeah, you have to add water. Yeah, it's about 200 grams or 300 grams, depending on when you're doing it. But you need you need to use your hands. You need to use your eyes. You need to use your brain. And it just gets easier and easier and better and better. Something what I find interesting is the the whole grain approach, because I would imagine, Mark, you were saying that you first started baking bread in the 60s and 70s, right? And you probably didn't have much of a choice in flours back then compared to now. Mm -hmm. How did you even go about researching or sourcing flour or grain to grind? I mean, that process alone can be, I would imagine, gigantic because there's so many small farms now, too, making artisanal flours and wheats. Well, I research by buying and cooking. And sometimes there's a, there's a, a, variety of wheat called red fife that's pretty much national and um a lot of bakers use it i haven't liked it that much but some people do mm -hmm. um but i've met people who are growing grain and i live in the hudson valley there's increasingly more and more um wheat mostly wheat rye also being grown around here it's nice to get that but i have friends who grow in in California, so I get some wheat from them, and and then of course you increasingly there are people producing good wheat in the middle of the country. Um, there's a, a company called Cairn Spring Mills near Cary. We've gotten grain from. I mean, it's all good. It's just that it's all different. Um, it's going to have a higher moisture content or a lower moisture content, more protein or less protein. It used to be that if you were an obsessive baker, which I'm not sure we qualify as obsessive bakers, but like a really obsessive, you would be like, I can't cook if the, I can't bake bread if the protein's less than whatever, 12%, whatever people say. And then it turns out, actually, you can. It's different, but it's still really good. And, and you know, if you think about the history of bread baking, people were taking local grain. I mean, this is until... 150 years ago, which is when everything changed, people were taking local grain. There was no access to grain from anywhere else. So people were taking local grain. It was being ground by a local person. They were baking whatever bread they could with it. And they didn't say, oh, this is this is why there's regional food. They didn't, they didn't say, oh, this isn't as good as the bread from 300 miles away. We better get grain from there. They just were like, this is our bread. And that's why there are differences, and, and there are still those differences, depending on where you live, what the weather is, what your grain is like, how you're handling it, and so on. But it's all good. You know, after you learn how to do this, you don't make bad loaves anymore. <laughs> Just they're all good. Now, I myself am very familiar with lean, lean doughs with whole grains, but your approach now into sweet doughs, what, what was that attempt like? To me, you know, now you're, now you're adding sugars uh, or other uh, fats, um, how are the grains able to support all this, all this extra 
ingredients, inclusions in the dough. I uh, I really insisted on like pushing it as far as we could. I have to say that it's a really good question because um, the biscuits, the pancakes, and the waffles get a little extra oomph from chemical leavening, from baking soda and baking powder, uh-huh. just a little bit. But that's the only, I mean, the biscuits, I'm showing my fingers, the, the biscuits sure. go two, three inches, and that's the only way you're going to get them with wow. 100% whole grain. Um, because I tried it without, you know, we tried it without and with, uh, but it's not much. And so you don't get, and we use buttermilk, so you don't, we use baking soda, so you, you don't really get culture. any, yeah. yeah, you don't get any flavor, you just get the tang. Mm-hmm. Um we also have a bread, though, uh, kind of like a brioche style, 100% whole grain. It's got egg and a lot of butter in it, and no problem. It's no problem. a sandwich bread. Yeah, no problem. Wow. It has to ferment a certain, you know, the same right. amount of time. And we didn't add the, uh, we didn't add the butter and the um, and the sugar and the milk until, uh, well, we added in stages. So it right. it gets oomph at every stage. Um, this is something we didn't talk about. The re- part of why the bread starter works in the fridge is that we do what's called a, we call a jump starter, which is basically a pre-ferment. So that levels the playing field, no matter how long your starter's been dormant in the fridge, you make this jump starter and it's equal parts starter, water and flour. And you let that sit anywhere from eight to 12 hours. Doesn't matter what, how, mm-hmm. what in that window. And then you build whatever product on top of that. So it's like, I, it, we would call it a pre-ferment though. That's a fancy word. So we are trying not to call it that. But um, So that that really gives you the oomph of a full powered starter. We've really gotten into like the science of it and the recipe aspect and what it took to make. What about the lifestyle benefits that people get from baking at home? I, I know that there's a lot right now about how it's good for reducing stress. It can, I mean, it's a healthier way to eat bread. I've always liked baking bread. So that's, and I've worked at home for 40 years. So for me, it's, it's a natural fit. I think the, you know, one of the bizarre silver linings of COVID was that people discovered that once you're home, baking bread is not hard. It takes a long time, but it's not time consuming. If you can understand the, that is much time passes, but not a lot of it is involves your work. Um, so as Kerry said, we do this jump starter that usually is overnight, but I have one going now cause I'm going to bake this afternoon. Um, and then it's sort of three minutes work every half hour for a couple hours kind of thing. Um, I, you know, I don't know that it's made me any mellower to tell you the truth, or whether this, <laughs> but I, I will say that when you start doing this, and especially when you start doing this with whole grain, there is no going back. I'm When I was spouting hyperbola 15 minutes ago about how this was the best bread in the world, I just don't go anywhere anymore. And, I, and you know, everywhere I go, I think, well, gee, this bread's all right. But McCary just mentioned the brioche. We had... Uh, we were at some friend's house a couple of weeks ago, fabulous cooks, great bakers, et cetera, et cetera. They'd made a beautiful, themselves made a beautiful brioche of all white flour. And to me, it was like eating a sponge. I mean, the whole grain thing is, it's the difference between pasteurized beef and industrial beef. I mean, it's it really is like that. It's so 
dramatic. And, I, you know, for many people, it'll take some getting used to, I suppose. But you're, you're just, you feel like you're eating the real thing. It's, it's a completely different, different animal. It's completely different bread, I guess. Um, so I don't know. I don't know about the Zen of it or the relaxation. I enjoy it, but I enjoy cooking in general. So, yeah, I don't know. Carrie, are you, you mellow now? Yeah, I don't know. I, well, I put, I probably put 10 pounds on this year and I don't know if it's the bread or the, or just cooking. Well, I was going to, I was going to ask what your, what your favorite toppings are on your loaf. Is it butter, olive oil, preserves? I'm an avocado toast person. (laughs) I'm like peanut butter, cheese, butter. Unfortunately, our time is out. I could sit and chew bread with you all day long. uh, That's for sure. But I want to thank you. Mark and Carrie for breaking bread with us today. That was Mark Bittman, Carrie Conan sharing their new cookbook, Bittman Bread, featuring no need whole grain baking for every day. For more on Mark's books, newsletters, and food with Mark Bittman podcast from the number one New York Times bestselling author, visit markbittman.com and join up with Carrie on Instagram at our daily bowl. I'm George Hirsch with today's Good to Know. The history of butter is romantic, considering it goes back 9,000 years. Over the years, there have been numerous bog butter finds, the latest in 2016 with a 22-pound chunk of butter, unearthed in an ancient Irish bog. Other discoveries have dated back 400 BC, thought to be buried for preservation. Today, the U.S. per capita of butter is about 6.2 pounds per person, rising almost every year for the past two decades. Does this correlate to our love of croissants? Probably not. However, we can take a lesson from the French. For breakfast, put the butter on a slice of bread. Then, dip it into your coffee. The romance of butter really breaks down to European-style butter containing at least 82% butter fat. American-made butter is only required at 80%. It doesn't sound like a lot, but that extra 2% makes for a richer, creamier product for baking and cooking. And that's good to know. Recently, Alex and I were in the kitchen, creating some exciting dishes and having fun with food. In Europe, community ovens date back to the 14th century that were mostly owned by churches. They charged a fee to bake your family's bread. Eventually, these ovens were taken over by the villagers, and the community of people in charge no longer paid a fee. Once a week, the oven would be fired up and the villagers would gather for conversation and bake. The bread is, of course, an essential nourishment, but the oven bake was vital to building a strong community. Hey, Alex. Hey, George. How are you? Good. Alex, uh, have you ever brought your dough down to a community oven? No, I can't say that I have. (laughs) I've brought plenty of dough to ovens at events, but not to any type of a community oven. This is something that, in a way... I think is it takes place the ceremony in in many different factions, you know more so than um, you know you know historically back in uh, 14th century or there's a wonderful group out in Minnesota of of churches and organizations. There's probably about 25 of them that belong to this community oven bake where they go down um, to the center and they bake breads, they bake pizzas, they use it as fundraisers, but it's a, a communal get-together, um, kind of like a, a modern-day Twitter for conversation, but, you know, in, in 
personal form. It's not something that's 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 virtual, which is which is something that's really really necessary. And I think it's a combination of everything from the experience of lighting up the ovens to mixing the dough, getting your hand in the dough, and the great benefits that that does to one's being, um, and the exchange that goes along with it. Have you have you ever participated in anything like that? No, not really. I can't say that I have. Um, I think that I think that bread holds such an important place in the history of civilization, and we can all relate to breaking bread with other people, right? So I might not have personally participated in a community bake at an oven, but what I do know is that oftentimes when my German grandparents were alive and we would have lunch over at their house, there was always a hard, crusty bread. I mean, there'd be like a whoosh platter on the table and there was always meat and cheese, but it wasn't like in America. You didn't have a packaged hot dog bun. You had a nice, crusty, fresh bread that my grandfather would go and get from the bakery in Smithtown. Now, was this um, a, a special occasion or is this just kind of – No, this was just lunch every day. Just lunch every, every day. Every day at lunch had like five different types of cured German meat, some type of like a liverwurst and then there would be wieners and then there would be cheeses. There was always a beer at lunch. You didn't get drunk at lunch, but you had a beer with the meal and there was just always a loaf of bread and a good mustard. Well, you, you know my roots, Alex, in public television, and of course, you know we've done this many times together uh, with with outdoor cooking, and grilling, and lighting a grill, and putting it together. So I think in a uh, mass uh, gathering of community ovens in today's times, it could translate to tailgating, or yeah. or lighting up the grill. In fact, my second cookbook in the second. TV series, you know, over 25 years ago was based upon the way we saw people react from the first season. Because every time that grill lit up, every time that fire happened, people gathered. Yeah. Well, I had I had uh, a stake in season Giants tickets for about eight seasons. Uh, that's a shout out to my good friends, John, JB, and Charlie. And John was also a chef. And we really turned those home games into a miniature catering event. And my uncle also had tickets, and his friend, Harry Nam Singh Khalsa, who I've told you about plenty of times, uh, he had season tickets. So they would all bring four guys. There was four of us. And before you know it, by the end of the first season, our tailgate had turned from four guys into about 16, 20. I mean, there were engineers who would fly in from Portland that were friends with my uncle who would come. And then there were uh, lawyers who worked with Charlie. There were cops that JB knew. And it was just this insane group of eclectic people. I mean, you had spiritual leaders, you had scientists. And I remember one day me and Charlie staying there and, and we were waiting for the grill to cool down because you'd eat dinner after the game so you didn't get stuck in traffic, you know. And there was like a couple engineers, my uncle who uh, was a computer tech guy and Harry Nam all in this car driving away. And my friend Charlie said, there's some big brains in that car. And the funny thing is, is the exchange of ideas and information that would have it happen at that tailgate over things like flatbreads or maybe a soup with dumplings in it. Some type of a bread-ish product always took place. Have you ever noticed it's almost like uh, people are discussing major uh, realms in physics on the serious tone that takes place when it comes to lighting like an oven, like a wood-burning oven oh, or, yeah. or a grill, and the passion that goes 
You're, you're, you're using coal to start it. Yeah. You're using gas. Or the teepee effect or what are you using for kindling? And... What is the draft? What is the wind? What is yeah. the – well, that became the next series, Know Your Fire, because of all that conversation. But it, it again, it just brings people and, – and you just pointed out that from all different backgrounds, um, all different economic culture um, – all sharing in something that is uh, just beautiful to watch. Well, one thing that bread makes me think of personally is actually diversity. Bread is as diverse as all of the cultures who consume it. Every civilization across the globe that you can think of has its own type of bread, right? I mean, we've got bagels, baguettes, biscuits, brioche, chapatis, challah, lavash, naan, pitas, pizza, pretzels, tortillas, Roti, uh, I, I mean, cheese breads, crostinis, I, I don't even know. There's just so much. And it plays an important role in celebrations, in mourning ceremonies, in religious observances. Uh, it's something that you might break a fast with. It, it's just something that permeates society and culture so diversely, but so uniformly, because even though everyone has their own bread, everybody has bread. The, the alchemy that is part of making bread and just taking four simple ingredients, water, a leavening agent, you know, salt, um, maybe a, a little sugar for the, f for, the, for the food, and of course, you know, the, the flour. And mixing those four ingredients um, really helps with a lot of physiological and um, sometimes psychological effects. Like there was a study out of Bethlehem Royal Hospital in uh, Kent, in England. And they did a trial and did studies on therapeutic benefits for people with uh, mental uh, health issues. Now, it, people, some were just very, very anxious. Um, and as a result of their sessions, they found that just kneading, putting their hands into that dough, mixing it and kneading it and shaping it, um, it showed potential therapeutic value in meditative effects um, that can help reset your mind. Now, you know yourself, you know, when we've made massive amounts of flatbreads, just making them, you get yourself into that rhythm. It, it's a meditative process because you're stretching the dough and it comes apart and then it goes back together and then it stretches a little more and then it comes back together and you start to get that smell that comes off of a fresh dough. You get that almost waxy feeling on your fingertips. And it's like a stress ball, you know? There's a reason why people mush those little things around. As you're kneading the dough and then stretching the dough and then shaping it, you always get something different, but it's like a perfect imperfection. You don't always get exactly what you want, but you get what you need out of the piece of dough. Every town in America has that one special place where the Little League teams go after games for a pizza or a taco, or perhaps even a barbecue joint where all the locals flock to pick up good cue for tailgating before the game. That's because going out for a meal with family and friends provides a sense of camaraderie and community. When the average life of a restaurant is only three to five years, an astonishing 60% go out of business within three years of opening. It is exceptional achievement when a restaurant manages to still be in business for 25 or more years operating multiple enterprises. Joining us is Mark Smith, CEO, co-founder from the Honest Man Restaurant Group, longtime friend, and a true hero within our community. Mark, thanks for joining us. 
Nice to see you, Mark. How are you? Nice to see you guys, too. Although I don't know that I could live up to that uh, introduction. Collectively, Mark, I was just thinking the other day, I was, I was on my hands just adding up the years. If you collectively added up the years of Nick and Tony's, Fundita, Coach Commodore, Townline mm. Barbecue. And Rowdy. And Rowdy. And Rowdy. Okay. Combined years? I, I, I came up with I came up with a number. Okay, what, so what do you think that number is? Uh, a is century. A, <laughs> I did. <laughs> That's it what was. I'm going with. It was. It yeah. was a hundred years. Yeah. Well, it's. I don't know if it is a hundred, but years. it's pretty yeah. close. Yeah. And uh, although it doesn't feel, I, sometimes it feels like a hundred years. Yeah, I'm sure it does. Other times, it's just you know. Now I don't want to date myself or yeah. you or or That's even right. Alex, but if we take it back now, Coach Commodore, which is your um, newest newest concept. Yeah. But formerly, it was the Honest Diner. No, that's going back a ways. <laughs> but I learned before Honest, it was called M&P. Yeah. Uh, I, locally, did, I didn't even know that. Yeah, locally, it was called Maggot Mike's, actually. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting because as um, local people now come to the new iteration, Coche, the stories about the original Maggot Mike's are what was it, M&P, you called M&P. it? M&P. And it stood for, what do you think, Alex? I have no idea. I don't even have a guess for this one. Come on, it's so easy. A diner. Uh, it, maggot and pie is what it no, sounds like after hearing Mike Mark. and Priscilla is a what, what? Mom and pop. There you go. Oh, mom and pop. Maggot yeah, that's it was like just, too it was easy. Just, yeah. yeah, it was yeah. too It was too too easy, but yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah. But being that you've been here for so long mm -hmm. and the Honest Group has been around, you're one of the largest employers of the East End, never mind even the South Fork, probably year well, round. And yeah. I'm not talking about current times. I'm talking about overall. Yeah, uh, we're a big employer. I mean, obviously the schools and the town are bigger employers. For than, private uh, enterprise. Yeah, I'd yeah. Say. I would say we're probably right up there. Unfortunately, after the pandemic, you know, the the um, amount of people that we employ is, is a lot less. Well, well, bets are always off considering the, yeah. the pandemic. But what do you attribute that success that, you know, even years ago, you just didn't put the key in the door, board up? Um, well, I don't, you know, I, I, I guess to be honest, a lot of the success has to go to Jeff, a.k.a. Nick of Nick and right. Tony's, who um, sort of had the vision, started it, you know, with the mothership, Nick and Tony's. And then I came along and we sort of, you know, developed this relationship and then sort of branched out. But really, you know, he was a guy that set a very strong foundation in terms of people, you know, the restaurant business, as both you guys know, is it's an interesting business and it, it requires a lot of time. You spend a lot of time with the people you work with and I'm not just talking hours, you spend holidays, you spend nights, you know, we often say in, in the business, we actually spend more time with each other than we do with our families. They are the extended family. Yeah, mm -hmm. and thus they become your family. And, and that has always been a very strong underpinning in our restaurants. And then as we grew, we tried to um, do the things that attract people to an industry wherein they feel they have some security. So traditionally people worked in a restaurant as a waiter, a busboy, a dishwasher. And it was just a job, yeah. you know, and you got paid and you either stayed there or didn't stay there. And we said, you know, if we want people to sort of look at our industry and look at their jobs as more than just a job, 
you, we got to walk the walk. We got to provide them with health insurance. We got to provide them with pension. We got, you know, profit sharing, things like that. So that, you know, when, when faced with the decision of, okay, I could go get a job here or I could go get a job here. And this job over here is more of a traditional job, maybe for the town where you get some of these benefits. You know, we said, if we want people to look at this as a career, then we need to buck up. And so in keeping with that, we started to do those things early on. Profit sharing, health insurance, 401ks, things like that. And it was interesting. I mean, the pool of labor out here has changed over the years. Mm -hmm. Meaning, meaning out here, is, East we're, we're like 120 miles from Manhattan. Yeah. yeah. So we're, we're like our own territory. Yeah. Well, it changed too, because initially it was really the type of industry that was either a stepping stone or a college job, That's really. It was point, kids yeah. who came home from college because all the way out here, we were seasonal traditionally. Mm -hmm. So it was real summer jobs. But I think that what you've done with your restaurant group is made a career out of it and made a reason why people stay out here. And it's becoming more year-round and people need careers like that. Yeah. And it's actually become um, a springboard, which I think what you want to in business, you want the people that work for you to go on and do bigger and better. And so many of the alumni that were in your group have mm -hmm. gone on to, to bigger positions. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, as a business person, you know, you're in a business so long, it's not necessarily, look, you have to make a profit in business. But there's other things as I look back on my career or look at my career. And, you know, the things that I walk away with are things like you just said, that somehow I was part of helping somebody be, you know, obtain their goal, whether it's to come out here and own a house and raise a family or a chef that really wanted to be in their own business, you know? So you're exactly right, George. I mean, that's sort of one of the, one of the things that I'm, I guess I'm most proud of actually when I look back. Do you think that mentality toward the business has added to the longevity? Yeah, I think so. Cause look, let's face it. Um, you guys know this business is, as I said before, tough business and uh, without good people, mm, it's hard to make it. And, you know, there's something to be said when you walk into a restaurant and you see the same face that was there 20 years ago or 25 years ago or 15 years ago or the same guy or woman behind the bar that's been there for 15 years and knows your drink before you sit down. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's certainly been, I think, an integral part of our success. Now, success as far as um, staffing is, is one thing, but I think success within the community is also defined in a number of ways. Of course, you know, on the surface, Alex, you know, you might look and we talk about this a lot of times. Oh, the food is so good. Oh, the, you know, they're, oh, they're doing this amazing stuff. However, when I look at it, well, that's kind of expected. Mm. What's not expected is what you have done within the community now for example and i've witnessed this over the years and this is sometimes the natural tragedies and disasters that come along you know either with people or um let's just take Superstorm sandy and witnessing that funny, yeah. and you did have one operation that got up online for quickly with power mm -hmm. and I was using a quasi office downstairs and in town line because I could come in and hook up everything there. Mm -hmm. But 
um, again, Superstorm Sandy. I don't even know why it got that name instead of a hurricane because it was a devastating. It was horrible. It was no power out here for weeks. Um, Floods. You couldn't even get through. However, you and your team sacrificed to get food. And I don't even know how you got food. Um, Prepare it. And then I got into the, the the grease carving with 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 Joey yeah. at at Town Line, and then you guys going in under gunfire up all the way up in where is it Brooklyn? Yeah, to Rockaways, the Rockaways Breezy Point, yeah. Breezy yeah. Point, yeah, yeah. You know, it was funny because we do these. We were doing soup kitchen at um, Most Holy Trinity in yes. in, the, in East Hampton. And I think it was a, su- a Monday that the storm hit. Yeah. That was the night we were supposed to do soup. So we had like, I don't know, 30, 40 gallons of soup. And we weren't doing the soup kitchen. So I said, Joe, what are we going to do? Plus the hurricane was coming. Or just happened. I forget the exact sequence, but we had all the soup. I said, dude, let's pack it up in the refrigerator van. Me and you were going to drive to Rockaways. You know, because I'm sure there's a lot of people yeah. that could use it. And... It was an eye opener, which is also was, such a crazy like restaurant owner chef mentality yeah, yeah, exactly. of oh everything's burning down, everything's closed. Let's make soup and go bring it yeah, to people. Yeah, and then we actually followed it up. I, I think somehow we procured, I don't know, three hundred turkeys, or maybe it was more than that, because Thanksgiving was right around yeah, the corner right around from the that. Corner. So we then made numerous trips with a bunch of people, mobilized a lot of people around. The community that that that's one thing about this community, the East End community, and you know it's not just East Hampton, it's not just us. It's a community of giving, and when the shoot hits the fan, as we say, these people step up. Whatever made you make that switch to jump over into hospitality, food service, restaurants? It was actually a moment of clarity that turned into a moment of insanity. You know, it's a long story, but I think it goes back to the love of food that I got from my mother and my grandmother. I've always enjoyed cooking. I've always enjoyed the restaurant in terms of conviviality and, you know, the family of of a restaurant. And, you know, we all go through life and there's certain things that happen in your life that gives you a, 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 a reason to pause or to step back and say, okay, where am I going? What's this all about? And... In my 30s, that something happened that made me step back and said, you know what? If not now, never. And I just sort of changed careers. And, you know, I was lucky. I mean, I was unlucky because I was going through a divorce, but I was lucky that I didn't have a lot of attachments to me. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people would like to do that, but they have a lot of responsibility, whether it's kids in school and finance. It was only me. And I just felt like if I didn't do this now, you know, who knows? And I, I've never looked back and I've never regretted it. Well, it's opened up so many very things. Very lucky. Very, very lucky that you, you have. Yeah, well, thank you. And that you, you came in and the community is as well. And if I didn't, I wouldn't be sitting here with you guys, right? That's right. Yeah. Well, a lot of people Two make of that friends. jump and fail miserably and you well, knocked it out of the park. You know, and that's the unfortunate part, Alex, because they fail financially. Well, that's true. And that's yeah. the saddest part. You know, they're undercapitalized. These are good, hardworking men women who believe that are passionate and you know by the grace of god we succeeded or continue to succeed because i always wake up you know i never take it for granted um but there's a lot of good people that haven't succeeded 
And I wouldn't call them a failure. It's just unfortunate. Now, you have the ability, Mark, to basically have any kind of food that you want with all your restaurant concepts. And I'm sure you dine out and check out. We've gone out yeah. and eaten together many times in places. What's your favorite food memory, though, when you were growing up? You know what? It's not a particular food. It's a smell. It's a smell of walking into my grandmother's house. It's never about the food. It's about the people and where you're having it. So for me, it was the smell, not any particular dish. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Yeah, Mark, it's always great to see you. It's nice to see you guys, too. Let's break some bread soon, huh? That was Mark Smith, CEO and co-founder from the Honest Man Restaurant Group, operators of longtime Hamptons restaurants, Nick and Tony's, Rowdy Hall, La Fondita Townline Barbecue, and Coach Commodore. There are certain restaurants in any town that everyone knows. Not only do they know the place, they know the people who work there or own it. In some ways, the sense of community created makes the restaurant the heartbeat of the town. For more food, culture, and lifestyle tips, guest interviews, and our podcast, visit WLIW.org radio and ChefGeorgeHirsch.com. And join our conversation on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WIWFM and at George Hirsch. One thing about baking, one thing about even uh, bread baking is how it stimulates the senses. You pointed out the smell of the dough. Well, when that bread begins to hit the oven and that aroma begins to hit the oven, uh, air. I mean, it's just it's just marvelous that transition yeah. that begins to take place. And you can smell like the type of yeast if it's a sourdough, if it's pizza, whatever the ingredients are. The smell is always different when you're baking bread. The the other part is in making bread, and I know people that you know do bake bread at home. And what they enjoy is not even just baking it for themselves, but baking it for other people. So they'll bake multiple loaves just so they can. They can give it away. And that positive impact that they're having by giving somebody a loaf of bread. You know, we do it a lot, you and I, when it comes to uh, around St. Patrick's Day. And we're making Irish, you know, soda, Irish bread. soda bread. The other thing is um, it's a great way to keep your mind focused because yeah. you do have to concentrate. You have to concentrate on the measurements. You have to concentrate on the the shaping. Well, this is an area where you and I differ greatly because you are a master baker and I don't really know how to bake anything. I can follow a recipe, but I don't think I've ever written a recipe down in my life. And that's one thing I've learned from you through all of our cooking together is how to follow these recipes and make things like bread and flatbread and dough because I always just did things off the cuff and just if it tastes good, it tastes good. If it needs something, you add something. But you have to be precise when you're baking bread. You have to be precise, and more important is your environment around you. I mean, for example, let's say you wanted a sourdough and you're going to start a, uh, have a starter, unless you're fortunate enough to be willed it by some <laughs> person who's yeah. had a starter for 25 years. Uh, you have to begin to develop your own starter, and that could take about 10 days. So this isn't something that you're doing quick. If you then are mixing different types of yeast doughs or uh, fermented doughs, you have to consider everything. You have to consider the temperature of the room, the temperature of the air, the, uh, the water. When I worked out west, you know, they always claimed that, oh, it's, it's, um, it's the water out here. It's the water. 
No, it's not the water. It's you, it's it, the air is drier, so you have to compensate climate, that. Yeah. You have to compensate in that in the climate. So so that with the temperature of the ingredients, how it begins to grow. You know when sometimes we have some projects and we're making something for you know today or tomorrow, and the dough is made, but it's only refrigerated to let it let it go overnight. Yeah. But we have a mutual chef friend who, you know, has a, a three-day ferment fermentation. That he level. he is an amazing he is an amazing chef and a, and, a, and a great baker. And when you see his his breads and his his pizzas and focaccias, they're just they just absolutely savory. But let me ask you this, Alex: um, Have you ever tried anything, let's say, in the quick bread variety? You know, you, this doesn't come. Kind of, you know, immediate and natural when you think of breads, but you know, when you think of banana bread, that is a bread. Yeah, it's a quick bread. Yeah, I made, I've made plenty of banana bread. Um, I think most people did, especially over quarantine. I think banana bread was like one of the top trending things on Twitter. I think one thing that surprised me about bread is we keep talking about baking bread, and in China, they actually steam bread. And I did a little bit of research on this before today, and this began back in the Han Dynasty 1500 years ago, and Chinese kitchens lacked conventional ovens. And apparently they're still rare today, so bread was steamed. And now all the rage is steamed buns, right? A lot of like Dave Chang restaurants. And I'll never forget when I lived in the city 12 years ago, uh, a good friend of mine, Adam, came in to visit. And I didn't really have friends in the city yet. I hadn't explored much. So it's 12 years ago, so Mama Fuku wasn't as famous as it is now. It was the Sambar. And we went and got steam buns and I had never heard of them. And I remember seeing those little white pillows and the bread is white because it's steamed. It doesn't bake and change colors. And I did not know what it was going to be. And it was one of the most amazing things I ever tasted. And it kind of hit me like in life, you never know what, what is out there fully. And at 27 years old at the time, I had found a new type of bread. And this all depends upon, you know, the culture and, and where it's from. I find it's always easier to find common ground when you've broken bread together. Sharing a meal is often about more than just food. It's also about coming together to make a positive impact for others in your community. Glad to have you join us on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. Our producer is Delaney Hafner, along with production support from Kyle Lynch. Supervising producer is Allie Gimble. George Hirsch and Diane Michelli are co-executive producers. George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio is a co-production of Hirsch Media and Audio Engagement Group, LLC. Thanks so much for tuning in to George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, the show that celebrates how our lives are connected through food and culture. For more episodes and our podcast, visit wiw.org radio and chefgeorgehirsch.com and your favorite streaming and podcast platforms. We'll see you next week right here on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio.